This Week at Church, Pastor Robert McKinley continues his AD series with The Significance of Nobody. You can join us every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for free coffee, free baked goods, a worship service, and a sermon to follow. The church is located by the Coventry Mall on Laurelwood Road. Well, we continue our series on AD. This week we're talking about the significance of nobody. The significance of nobody. We read this last week, but the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So today we're going to talk about the effect of what the Lord can do with just one person. This person is a man. He is a man that God chose. And this man was a persecutor and a murderer. A man who had some small notoriety notoriety, but in the grand scheme of things, he was just a nobody. He really wasn't a well-known person in Jerusalem. In some ways, he was like most of us. Some education, some influence, but nothing really special until God got a hold of him. And he used this man to turn the world upside down. Today we're going to look into, uh, a little further into Saul's life. A man who persecuted, murdered Jewish Christians. He put fear into the hearts of the disciples because of his zeal to stamp them out. And that's what this argument was all about that we just saw on the video. He was a scary man. He was, he was what we would think of uh, someone who came against God. But we would all, almost never think of him in a way that God thought of him. God used him. God drastically changed his life and used him. So remember, we'll review from last week. As Saul neared Damascus on a journey, light from heaven flashed around him to the ground. He heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he looked at the light and says, Who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And then we read about where Ananias, and I'll add this reluctantly, <clears throat> went to the house where Saul was. <coughs> After placing his hands on Saul, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes because he was blinded, and he could see again. Wow. Could you imagine what this experience must have been like for Saul? Here he was hunting down Jews who thought the Messiah was Jesus. And now he comes face to face with the risen Christ and he realizes that he's wrong. 
Not mistaken, dead wrong. Jesus is the Messiah, and he's risen from the dead. Think about that. What if this was you coming against Jesus, and he shows himself to you, and you realize you are dead wrong, and he called you out for everything you've done against him? And just to be sure that you get the message, he makes you blind for three days. Everything Saul thought he knew and believed was wrong. And he had three long, lonely days to think about it. I doubt that if any of us have been in his shoes. He was so wrong on so many levels, it's hard to fathom. How do you wrap your mind around that? And then Ananias comes to him and tells him about Jesus and heals him. Think about this. God stops him, gets his attention, heals him, and calls him for a special mission. How many here would have enlisted Saul to do some work for them, for God? What if it would have happened to you? What if God chose you to be his instrument? Crazy? Really? Why not? How does God select someone like you or me or Saul? A real nobody, even a murderer. It's not that far-fetched. I'm starting with your notes now if you're following along. God could have picked you. He could have picked you. The Bible is filled with examples of nobodies who became somebodies for God. I mean, that appears to be God's M.O. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise... And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And I think about Moses and Daniel. These guys were nobodies. Who became somebodies? But the biggest nobody was just this kid called David. Look how God picked up that small shepherd boy, picked him out. It's in... 1 Samuel chapter 16 says, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, who was there to anoint the next king, okay? But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, there's this, the younger one, youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. I like that. We're all going to stand around until this happens. So, he sent for him and had him brought, him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and, a handsome, and handsome figures. Then the Lord says, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Jesse's runt son grew up to be 
the king of Israel. So David was a king, a kid, nothing really special. The only thing he had going for him was he had a good heart. Now we have in Acts, Saul, who was a murderer, and the only thing he had going for him, he had a bad heart. I'm talking a hateful heart. So we got a good heart and a hateful heart. Streams, and it's mind-boggling that God's criteria is he chose both of them. Let's talk about David for a second. He started out about the most insignificant person in the Old Testament. But you know, David went on to kill Goliath and he rose to greatness as the leader of the God's nation. You wonder why God picked him. I mean, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 we read, Then David, King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? I mean, we all know what David did for God in the Old Testament. He was a superstar. He had one of the biggest dynasties on the face of the earth. In the same way, Saul went on to be one of the most important figures in the New Testament, devoting his life to bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. This is a big deal in the post-resurrection period because before Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10, there were no Gentiles. All the first Christians were Jews or half-Jews. They all assumed that this gospel was strictly a Jewish message. From the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was their Messiah, it was their law, it was their temple, it was their religion. So when Saul believed and became known by his Gentile name as Paul, he took the message to the rest of the world. It was a big deal especially for most of us in this room, because we're Gentiles. So, who was this Paul? Who was this Paul? What do we know about him besides he persecuted Christians? I mean, he lists a short resume in the letter to the Philippians. He says, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, I'm circumcised in the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Not exactly a great man of his time like Caesar Augustus or King Herod, yet God chose him and made him great. We may never know why God chose Paul, but he did. And he did more with Paul than any other person in the New Testament. There was something that moved God to pick him out of all the Jews in Israel. We know that God looked at David's heart and chose him. Something moved God to pick a murderer, to pick a persecutor. How do we explain that? Do you think maybe behind the scenes stuff was happening folks 
we'll never meet until we get to heaven? I mean, we're speculating right now. But I think about two people when Jesus was born, was at the temple because they were praying for the Messiah to come. We got to meet them in Scripture. Maybe there were some people Maybe from the Christian realm. It wasn't that old. Jesus had been around for three and a half years before all this happened. Maybe there was someone praying, Lord, bring someone that can take the message to the Lord. We don't know. Who with fervent prayer shouldered the burden of all the greats that we read about? Like Gideon and Deborah and Mary and Joseph and Stephen and Moses. There's a good possibility somebody praying for Saul. His worldwide impact is too great not to have been prayed over and through and around by some sweet believer. And now, what if you could be that person for a new Paul? Listen to me. This is, this is for you. What if you could be that person for a new Paul? If you knew that you could do something for God, if money and responsibilities were not an issue, what would you do? What would you dream? Or what dream would you chase after for God? If you knew you couldn't fail, would you become a writer? Would you become a pastor, a missionary? I don't even know how to say this word. A philanthropist, you know, a, a rich guy. That you could give money to the gospel? An evangelist? What would you do as insignificant as you are for Jesus? If you knew that you couldn't fail. If he chose you to be his instrument. I'd like to challenge you this morning to consider doing this. To make a big impact for Jesus. I mean a big impact for Jesus. I would like for you to take it upon yourself to pray for this person that I was just talking about. Couldn't fail. Money, responsibilities, all provided by God. Everything. And you're the person praying. You're the person behind the scenes. And they don't even have to know it. They don't even have to know it. On a regular basis, you're praying for this person. I'm not talking about just praying today. I'm not talking about praying for a month or a year. I'm asking you to pray for them for the rest of your life. I'm asking you to pray for them to become significant. Be that insignificant prayer person behind a, an insignificant Saul who becomes a significant Paul for our generation. Now, here's the twister. That person might be an enemy of Christ right now. That person could be a murderer like Saul was. But let me tell you something. Put him in prayer. I mean, it might be a crooked person, a crooked politician. It might be your son or daughter. 
Maybe it's your crabby neighbor. Now, here's what I wanted to tell you. It's hard to criticize somebody when you're praying for them. Okay? So if you've got one of them, don't criticize them. Pray for them. Maybe it's the kid in your English class. Maybe it's a rock star or an actor or a scientist. Whoever it is, let your faith imagination run free. And zero in on them with the crosshairs of your prayer life. Pray that God would bring them to Him if they don't know Jesus. Pray that God would help them to grow spiritually. Pray that they, He would uh, make a spiritual impact or she would make a spiritual impact for the kingdom of God. The question is, will you accept that challenge? Will you accept that challenge? Are you willing to become a behind-the-scenes prayer warrior? Hey, it may be crazy. But look what was happening in the book of Acts. Talk about some crazy stuff. Miracles. I mean, God is performing miracles left and right. Now, maybe you're wondering what significant thing you can do for the Lord. Will you accept this challenge for the rest of your life? Will you become in a quiet, behind-the-scenes prayer closet? And will you pray for a Saul in your life to become a Paul? Sure, there's going to be days that you might forget. But imagine what could happen if you drench somebody of insignificance in prayers for years and years and years and years. Wouldn't that be something? When, when you get to heaven and meet all the people whose lives were changed because you prayed for the person who ministered to them and they got saved. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want to share something with you in closing. We, Cindy and I, literally saw hundreds to thousands of children come to know the Lord when we were children's evangelists. Along with teens and adults, we saw a lot of people pray the prayer of salvation at the altars. What do we attribute this to? Did we attribute it to because we were good at what we did? No. Even though we worked hard to be the best and most professional that we could be, the greatest factor was because my Sunday school teacher, who she was in her 60s when she started, prayed for me every morning. Every morning at 5 o'clock. When I first started going to Bible school, she told me, I lift you up every morning at 5 o'clock. When Cindy came to be part of my life, then she prayed for the both of us. She became both of our Sunday school teacher and 
continued to pray for over 20 years. Listen to me, friends. For 20 years, until she died, she prayed for me. Every morning. Every morning when she was able. She died in her upper 80s. Sound crazy? Hmm. No. Not at all. When I was thinking about this, I believe if it wasn't for her, there's a good possibility I wouldn't be doing a whole lot for the Lord today. I'd probably be an auctioneer or cooking in a kitchen somewhere. There's a good possibility that there would have been souls that had the opportunity to accept Christ, never even hear the message. Am I saying that because I'm somebody? No. I'm saying that because Mom Woodley was somebody. See, I'm not the only one she prayed for. She prayed for a lot of us. It's the power of God, friends. When he can take a life of insignificance, and I'm really not that significant, but I was significant for people that heard the message. And I'm still significant today when I stand before you and I stand before the camera and I bring the gospel message into people's homes and stand here and challenge you with what God has put on my heart to challenge you. So let me ask you a question. Is there someone significant in your life whom you could prayerfully mold into a Paul? I challenge you today to prayerfully give that idea some real time, mull over it, and see if God doesn't put someone on your heart. Someone who just might become a somebody for Jesus. Because you help them, not by what you said, not by the guidance you gave, but by the calluses you got on your knees. Someone like a Saul of Tarsus, a significant nobody. Stand with me, if you will. Are you willing to take the challenge? You say, Pastor. I'd love to take that challenge, but I just don't know who to pray for. I just don't know who to pray for. I look around our church and I see some wonderful young people who their lives are being molded right now for the service of God, whether it be a full-time service or it would be service as they work a secular job. I see some young people here who are yearning for God's direction in their life. 
what do you want me to do for you, Lord? How can I be of significance for you? I'd like to name names of people that you could pray for, but I'm not going to. I want God to give you the names. I want God to lay that on your heart. I want God to help you be faithful in praying for them. So this morning, if you'd like to take that challenge, just come and stand at the altar. Maybe you don't have anything you want to pray for right now. You don't know who to pray for. Mom Woodling, in her later years, cleaned the church. And she would take her lemon pledge and she would go to the pulpit and she would dust the pulpit and spray it with lemon pledge and the other furniture that was around. We had a nice wooden organ and a piano and she would clean all that. But she would never clean the top of the altar. She said, I can't clean off the tears, the tear stains that are on the altar. And she knows that tear stains are there because she put plenty of them on herself. And she prayed for others who also drip stains on the altar with tears. Friends, when Jesus went in to clear the altar or clear the temple, he says, this needs to be a house of prayer. Maybe we're missing that aspect of our church. This needs to be a house of prayer. I challenge you, if there's somebody that you will lift up for the rest of your life, come to this altar. Come to this altar.